Morning Show on 95.3 WBCK. And here's Tim Collins. It is 8.09 now, 95.3 WBCK, and uh, it's a Monday, that's for sure. Uh, Sherry Sherbin will be along a little bit later on, and we will chat a little bit uh, about our uh, upcoming event for Miles for Memory, our Miles for Memory moment. And we're going to talk a little bit with Kenneth C. Davis. He is the author of Don't Know Much About History and a whole bunch of books in that series. And we're going to uh, do that here in just a moment. We need to reconnect with Mr. Davis, and we'll be right back. The annual Point Mugay Waterfowl Festival, next in today's All Outdoors Update. Hey, hey, come out and play somewhere green. On a sunny day, we can run and shout hooray. It's more fun than I can say. Here in Michigan, just about any day is a great day to come out and play. A reminder from the folks at M Parks, the Michigan Recreation and Park Association. The annual Point Mouillet Waterfowl Festival is this weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. The Point Mouillet State Game Area is near the mouth of the Huron River at Lake Erie, about 20 miles south, a little west of downtown Detroit. The huge weekend festival focuses on everything that happens around the valuable wetland area. Here's the festival chairman, Bob Whitwam. It's nature's filter. It's where all the game and wildlife, including waterfowl, go. They need a place to be and go. It's songbirds, everything in between. So it's a highly important thing, and you can't put a price on something like that. All the money raised from the festival goes back into helping manage and protect Point Mouillet. 4,600 acres of irreplaceable wildlife habitat. Tomorrow, more on the habitat work there. Check out the links we've set up at alloutdoorsupdate.com to both the festival and the managed area to learn more about Point Mouillet. I'm Jim Mishler. For 30 years, Kenneth C. Davis has proven that Americans don't hate history, just the dull version they slept through in class. His approach is to refresh us on the subjects that we should have learned and also uh, bust a few myths, set the record straight, uh, make uh, make it more entertaining. And uh, I discovered this 30-some years ago here on the radio, and uh, Mr. Davis was one of our early guests on the program when we came here to WBCK. The book is called Don't Know Much About History. Kind of C. Davis, nice to have you with us again. Good morning. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be with you. I feel like uh, Rip Van Winkle, sort of, that's uh, woken up 30 years later, and here we are. But, um, I, you know, obviously, I, I like to have fun with history, but this weekend, obviously, a very sad, tragic reminder of how hard history can be, but the importance of, of connecting events. What happened in the past has everything to do with what's uh, going on in our lives today, and, and that's the way I've tried to talk and teach about history, but uh, still uncovering those um, pieces, little pieces that your school books left out that make the thing so much more alive, interesting, and human. Well, you know, and, and history is constantly changing uh, as we add new, and as you say, how the how the previous history impacts that. So you've had to update this book a, a couple of times. 
That's right. It's been revised, updated, expanded uh, several times over the uh, past 30 years. And, you know, one and one of those changes is a, a recent addition. Uh, I had to rewrite the uh, the whole introduction or preface to the book because, you know, and, and this speaks to the question of how history changes. When I wrote the book 30 years ago, we think back to that, the uh, Cold War had just ended. The Soviet Union had fallen apart. It was inconceivable uh, uh, to me at the time that that had happened. South Africa had had been transformed with uh, the end of apartheid. It was this moment when uh, the two Germanys were, were united. It was this moment in world history that we thought everything had changed, democracy was triumphant, and we were going to move forward into a new era. Um, that period of, of kind of thinking that uh, the, the democracy was triumphant uh, really lasted about 10, 15 years. But the last 15 years, I think, have been much more about the reversals to democracy and how fragile democracy is, not only around the world in places like Russia and Hungary and the Philippines and South America, obviously, but, uh, but here at home as well. So we are in a moment of, I, I think, uh, considerable risk to our democracy. And that's why I think that um, this book, by teaching people about the past and the connections to the present, is still so important. Um, uh, by the way, uh, for people who aren't familiar with my work, you can do- go to my website, don'tknowmuch.com. Uh, I write uh, about the kind of thing I'm talking about here right now, the connections between the past and the present and uh, the history behind holidays like Labor Day, for instance, which is so fascinating. Have you ever had any pressure from publishers or even just the public at large to, you know, tone down certain things about our history or maybe leave parts uh, of the, the 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 black spots out and, and things like that? No, in, in fact, uh, I would say uh, I've never had any pressure like that. I mean, obviously, there are people who don't like the way I write or some of the things that I might say or some of the conclusions I draw. But first of all, I want to be clear that I write about accurate history. I write about what we know to be true. And sometimes that changes. When I first wrote the book, for instance, we didn't know about DNA and Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with this young enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. We know a lot more about that today. So that's something that I wrote about as something in the way of speculation originally, but history has changed because we we know that the record has changed, that Thomas Jefferson did have a relationship with this woman, who, by the way, was 30 years younger than he was, and also was the half-sister of Jefferson's dead wife, Martha Jefferson. Uh, a lot of people don't make that connection uh, between Jefferson and, and Sally Hemings. So this was a, a very strange and, by our modern standards, unacceptable relationship. So it's, you know, it's always important to put these things into context. It's important to, to say that we know that history changes or our understanding of history changes. Certainly attitudes towards the Confederate flag and statues have changed markedly in just the past few years. Um, it, so we've we've been through some big transformations in in 30 years, and I've never uh, done anything except be devoted to trying to be truthful and accurate. Uh, and make, as I said, these connections between what the past has to do with us today. 
One way that history revisionists operate, I think, is is just by leaving stuff out, uh, omission. And um, I, one example is that you know the the dropping of the atomic bombs on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, it, you know, it was a, a terrible thing. Uh, everybody would agree that a lot of lives were lost. A lot it was, it, it, but but what people don't realize, and I I realized when I read that part of your book was there was more to it than just trying to end the war quickly. Truman and uh, well, pretty much the entire world was scared to death of the Russians having the atomic bomb and the, and the start of, of uh, you know, the, the nuclear, uh, what do I want to say? That, well, but what I'm trying to say is, is that he wanted to send a clear statement to the Russians, hey, we're not afraid to use this thing. That's that's exactly correct, and, and certainly that's part of the aspect that got left out of the school book. I actually just uh, every year uh, around in, in August, uh, in July and August, I write a, uh, a piece, post a piece on my website, don'tknowmuch.com, called um, The Month That Changed the World, uh, the, the month that went from July 15th when the atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico to August 15th when World War II ended and the Japanese surrendered, and it discusses this exactly. Now, I don't come down on one side or the other. Was Truman right or wrong? Was the bomb right or wrong? I present facts to people and try and let them make their own decisions. Certainly there are other historians who would say, oh, yes, Truman was absolutely right, or oh, no, Truman was absolutely wrong. But what you're saying is completely correct that you have to put this into the context that one war was ending the so, uh, world war ii was coming to an end germany had already been defeated japan was uh, about to surrender but the next conflict had already begun the next conflict being the cold war that we all understand and this was certainly uh, part of truman's uh, and the military uh, decisions that were made at the time. I, I don't think there's any question about that, and we have to put that into the mix when we discuss it. But the fact is, as you, you mentioned, it's so fascinating that Truman goes and meets Stalin at Potsdam. It's the first and only time the two men meet each other. And Truman tells uh, Stalin that they have this terrible weapon, which he doesn't really describe it too much. And, uh, and Stalin kind of shakes his head and uh, laughs it off. But he knows about it. He knows about it because atomic, the atomic spies, Soviet spies, had given all of the information, uh, the crucial information, to the Soviet Union. And uh, it's, it's part of the fascinating intricacies of history that we have to explore. Uh, it's, it's never as simple as black and white. And I find that, that those little bits of story and those little pieces of the the human side of the story is what makes this so uh, compelling. It's much more interesting than any fiction, as far as I'm concerned. Here's the challenge, though, for historians like you, and uh, the the argument that Truman wanted to make a strong statement to Stalin to keep them at bay in the Cold War is meaningless to today's last couple of generations. They don't know what it was like to duck and cover and uh, have bomb shelters and, and live every waking moment in fear of a nuclear attack. You're right. I think that uh, I 
was that generation. I was marched downstairs when I was in elementary school for our to the bomb shelter. You remember those uh, civil defense little markers on the wall, and there were even crackers and water stored away in uh, basements. Of course, they would have been utterly useless in in most cases. I lived just out right outside of New York City uh, growing up, and I'm sure we would have been pretty much obliterated if there had been a nuclear exchange. So I think that that threat that we lived under for so many years and was the threat that I wrote the book out of uh, as, as, of course, having coming to an end in the 1990s um, has has changed. I think that when we have an incident uh, like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor for an earlier generation, these things do stick with one generation until they become a part of history. You know, unfortunately, uh, I have to reflect that the fact that Memorial Day started as Decoration Day in the, at the end of the Civil War, this really solemn holiday for a very, very long time. But really, by the end of the century, the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, it had already become the summer holiday picnic. People had forgotten what it was about, the loss and the the memorializing the men who had died, the men and women, the losses of the Civil War. So we always have to be careful uh, about forgetting the past. And and that's one of the reasons I think my book and other books of history are so important. We're going through this great reckoning right now and debate uh, and sometimes it's quite angry and it's uh, dis- disrupting school board meetings about how we teach uh, America's racial history. It's part of our entire history and we can't separate it out. wrote a book uh, recently called In the Shadow of Liberty and it talks about five people who were enslaved by presidents people who were owned by Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and, and Andrew Jackson. It's a very human story that tries to put a human face on this subject that's so important in, in our history, but many people would rather skip over. I, I don't think we can skip over it. Um, I grew up in a time when no one discussed George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as, as enslavers, slave owners, who uh, Washington owned more than 300 uh, people on on his uh, plantations. He only freed one of them in his will, by the way. Uh, many people think he freed them all. He did not. Um, so these are important pieces of our history that still uh, echo down to our time, and that's why I think it's so important to understand these stories. Kevin C. Davis, the author of Don't Know Much About History, it was first published in 1990, has been updated, and now a whole series of books, uh, Don't Know Much. In fact, the website, don'tknowmuch.com, you can uh, check them all out. What did they tell you when you first started to shop this book around the publishers? And it was like, a history book? Kenneth, really? Well, I, you know, I was very lucky. I uh, uh, sent it off to uh, an editor who was intrigued by it, somebody of my own generation. They got the idea, and uh, it was around the time that people were talking about 
how poor Americans were. And again, this is, you know, more than 30 years ago, how poor Americans were at understanding history. A lot of people said, oh, it was boring. It was just dates and battles and speeches. And I said, we need to tell the story a different way. And uh, my book is a series of questions and answers. Some of them are a little bit offbeat and quirky. Some of them are just very straightforward. What does the Declaration of Independence declare? But then there's, uh, you know, the a curious question like, why is there a statue of Benedict Arnold's boot in Saratoga, New York? Um, those are the kind of quirky questions that I think spark curiosity. Curiosity is what I've been about through, uh, throughout my career, uh, being curious about the past, being curious about uh, I've written about, uh, don't know much about books about geography, the Bible, mythology, the American presidents, uh, and, and all of them come down to asking questions and trying to get real answers that make, uh, again, make this, this story come to life uh, in a way that textbooks, unfortunately, do not. Uh, too many people have said to me, oh, I'm so bored, and I... My history teacher was my was a football coach, and he was a good football coach, but he wasn't a good history teacher. <laughs> and I'm sure there are some great football coaches who are also great history teachers, but I've heard that too many times not to uh, think that it, 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 it's a real problem. I remember yeah, a little uh, tidbit from your book that made me realize that you know, there are parts of our history that we never hear about that really show uh, that our, our forefathers, our leaders, they're just people like us. And uh, the, the the part about, you know, the Valley Forge and crossing the Delaware and Washington had a, I believe he was there, the artillery general, Henry Ox Knox. Henry Henry Knox, yeah. <laughs> and they called him Ox because he weighed 250, 80 pounds. And yeah, he was a big, he was a big man. <laughs> and so the quote from I, I our, will, our forefather, I, will, I, I can, okay, go ahead. I can finish the story for you. <laughs> I, I, Knox was also famous because he had taken cannons from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston, where Washington uh, had the army uh, just outside of Boston. And those cannons were put up and he took them by ox cart across the Berkshire Mountains. And that was the other reason he was known as Henry Ox Knox, a very important man in, in Washington's life, very important man in the revolution. But uh, the way Knox told the story after the war was that when they were crossing the Delaware, Washington said to Knox, shift that, that arse, Harry, but slowly or you'll swamp the damn boat. I never heard that story when I was growing up in school, and it's too bad. I think it speaks to Washington's earthy humanity. You know, we see him as this, this face unsmiling on the dollar bill. He was a human being. He didn't have, it wasn't a man with a great sense of humor. He was certainly not a backslapper, uh, but he was uh, far more at home with his troops in the field than he was perhaps in the halls of Congress. Uh, and, and so that is the fascinating personal side of the history that I try and uh, and get at. And it, it reminds us that these people are not only human, but that means they were, they had all the failings that human beings have. They had egos, they had ambitions, they had uh, desires and, and, uh, and dreams that, um, you know, sometimes were fulfilled. If we just see them as marble statues, I think we're doing them and ourselves a disservice. So it's not to tear them down. It is not to uh, de de deny their accomplishments. The country exists because of men like Jefferson and Washington. But that does not mean they were not 
uh, imperfect men with failings who made mistakes. Uh, even Abraham Lincoln, who I consider the greatest president, um, had his flaws, had his failures, certainly had his critics in his own time. Um, but um, we have to see the whole picture, and it's a lot more interesting that way. Kenneth C. Davis, don't know much about history, a whole series of books. Uh, just go to don'tknowmuch.com. You'll see all of them, and uh, we appreciate your time. Nice to talk to you again, Kenneth. Great. Uh, I'll meet you in 30 years again, Tim. <laughs>